if we're looking at a future where analysis, prediction and some behavioural stuff can be done better by machine, what humans need to do is practice what they haven't practiced since they were kids, but they're actually better at as adults. What cannot be bypassed is human creative thinking, creative potential, and the bringing together of unexpected connections, which is the basis of all innovation. And so if people pivot away from, my God, I've got to be an expert, I've got to be a specialist, and start trying to free this other part of their mind, imagination, they are perfectly positioned for the next 100 years, let's face it. This is Techcetera, a podcast by Ericsson about the intersection of technology, culture, etc. I'm your host, Sarah Goss, and I'm Head of Innovation at Ericsson. Technology can't save the world from all its ills. Humans need to play their part too. But technology may just be the most powerful, scalable tool we have to tackle some of our biggest issues. Issues like climate change, social equity, food security and access to healthcare. So what happens when you put two futurists, both passionate about sustainability, in the same podcast and ask them why technologies like 5G and IoT might just help save the world? And what's their connection with the fourth industrial revolution? Well, you're about to find out. Today, you'll hear from Mark Pesci. Mark is a leading futurist and author. He's been at the forefront of the digital revolution for 35 years and has his own successful podcast, The Next Billion Seconds. You'll also hear from futurist, inventor and adventurer Sally Dominguez. Sally has won multiple international product design awards, is an ambassador for Engineers Without Borders and Good Design Australia. Let's get into it. Sally, when people ask you what you do and you tell them that you're a futurist and they look at you and go, what's that? What do you tell them? It's a tricky one because actually if you say in Australia, I'm a futurist, people go, oh, you're a futurist, are you? You know, it's like, what is that? Essentially what I do, I have been an inventor and an architect. And what's interesting is back in the history of everything, the things that I invented generally were about seven to nine years before they hit mainstream. And now I work on kind of future forward strategies. And that's anything from well, what people should do for 2030 digitally. I wrote the 2030 futures report for IKEA. I'm doing a green hydrogen pipeline project for the whole of the Caribbean, making seawater into hydrogen, and I'm inventing a new convergence of house and car. So as a futurist, it's kind of combo inventor, future forecaster, and I guess doer, because I actually do the stuff that I forecast. You certainly make the profession sound very exciting. Mark, why are you passionate about the role of technology and innovation in shaping our future? And what do you get excited about in your job as a futurist? I guess part of what we are as a species is a conversation between our minds and our hands. And so our minds are constantly changing things in the material world, using our hands, taking a look at how that change affects us, affects our culture, improving that. And so, you know, we talk about agile as this continuous improvement. Well, actually, that's the human story. I guess a futurist is someone who tries as much as they can to work with people who are grappling with that. So there's a whole galaxy of how we thrive as a species, how we thrive as a planet, how we thrive as individuals. And that intersection is one of the places I think that futurists like to work. 
So how do you make it feel attainable, Mark? How do you help those people and companies wrestle and grapple and make it feel that it's within their grasp to make sense of it and to define a strategy for themselves? So there's a couple of really good rules of thumb. One of them comes from the science fiction writer William Gibson. The future's already here. It's just not evenly distributed. And if you can show people where they are already touching the future, even if it's not pervasive, but where, you know, they're, they're at least bumping into it, they can be very concrete. Because what you can do is say, look at that thing. Now imagine what happens when that thing is at scale. And if you can do that and they can come along for that ride, then they have tools. So a lot of my work lately has been around taking organizations into 2030 using what we already know from today. If you can't do that, if you can't ground what you're advising in the present, then you don't actually understand what's coming. This is one really good reason why futurists not only need to have a sense of the future, but they actually have to be very well grounded in history, whether it's the history of technology or the history of a culture or the history of a nation, because you actually need that foundation to be able to spring forward. Mark, in terms of grounding things back in the today, in the tech sector, we talk about a lot of acronyms, but ones that are particularly popular at this point in time are things like 5G and IoT. Can you explain what do they mean? The Internet of Things is the idea that almost everything that we fabricate, and there are certain things that won't fall into this case, but almost everything that we fabricate will be intelligent and connected. That means basically that it's got chips in it. Now, why would you do that? It's because it produces this very, very broad distributed awareness of state so that things kind of know what's going on around them and they kind of know what they need to do based on what's going on around them. Some of that intelligence is embedded in the device, but some of that intelligence is then emergent from the network of all of the devices that they're connected to. This is where 5G comes in because 5G then becomes the network that connects all of these devices together so that they can function cohesively and they can work cohesively. And when I like to future gaze, when I see a world of 2040 or 2050, a world in which we will be managing our energy usage as a matter of both survival and as a matter of economics, that having this kind of functionality and granularity embedded in everything that is electrical by definition means that they will all be working in concert to optimize their efficiency, their energy usage moment to moment. Where do we go from here with 5G and IoT where it's at today? I mean, we're already doing smart TVs, smart fridges, smart homes, but what's next as you future gaze out to that 2030 or 2035 horizon? I think there is an amazing ability to help remote location farmers, to help bring agriculture to a more viable, robust, sustainable reality, to help facilitate telemedicine, except that now we're seeing a crowd scene of satellites which are necessary to get this out there. And if I step back and go, huh, how's the future looking right now? I look at the fact that there's not actually enough room for all the satellites we need 
Do we suddenly start creating a crust above the Earth that is taking solar power from the sun and combining it with a set of satellites to actually become this kind of circulating thing that is serving 5G, running itself on its own power and doing incredible things? Or does the future look like 100 million people throwing satellites up into the Earth, a couple of crashes every now and then with a bit of stuff showering down? Like it's kind of an interesting inflection point because no one governs space. And yet, in order for 5G to really bring the benefits that we are really hoping it does, we need it to have all-encompassing reach. And in order to do that, we got to work out what's going to happen in the sky. Who are the ones best place to take that first step and show others the way? I've been studying global trust for two years now um, because it's such an important part of vision and purpose. You know, do we have trust? Does a brand have trust? And what's interesting is we have seen a global meltdown of trust since 2019. But with that, what is super interesting to me, an overwhelming, almost 80% of people expect private brands to take over the role of government. They've lost trust in government. They've lost trust in institutions. They want private brands to address social injustices, climate issues. There's an expectation, not just from Gen Z, although Gen Z are overwhelmingly powering it that private brands will step up. I think Gen Z is going to assume that they have a vital part to play in terms of supporting the right companies. And I think that there'll be a kind of a bypass of government in many places. I want to pick up on the thread about the role technology can play in addressing sustainability and the climate challenge. I think the combination of the Internet of Things and 5G is creating significant opportunities for improving energy efficiency and so on. I wonder, Sally, can you give some examples of how technology like 5G and IoT can really be a game changer for global sustainability. If we just take a category, if we look at drones and specifically massing drones and the ability of 5G to help drones interconnect, to help them react faster, to help them stay up in the air longer, to go further, and we look at drones planting trees in remote areas, drones dropping medical supplies into natural disaster sites or remote areas again, just this little device to be able to do so much more with that speed of connectivity and then to connect back to us. So you may have seen the Intel Star Drones that formed a giant QR code in the sky above Shanghai But that's a post-screen world where you can put mass drones up into the air, control them faster, control them much faster, what are we, one millisecond instead of 100, to form QR codes that then anybody in the region points a phone at, clicks through, and again, if they're on 5G, instantly to wherever you sent them. The connectivity and the ability to relay information faster, to communicate within each other faster, to avoid collisions, to get around buildings, to do more complex activities that help humans be out of the way of danger, that we can now send in massing drones into rescue sites like the one in Miami. Those drones, I think, are doing really interesting things. The people that are making them from mycelium, making them from mushroom, so they're biodegradable, so you send them in one way into a remote area. They're cheap, they have printed circuitry, but once they're there, we don't need them anymore. They literally melt into the ground. So in terms of sustainability, it's not just planting trees, it's not just delivering things, but it's also that we can now use devices that are essentially more sustainable in the way they operate and the way that they biodegrade. So that's a bit exciting. It sounds really out there, 
How do you convince people that it's a good idea? You can certainly see the application. You can certainly see the benefits. But for everyday people who envisage in their mind's eye what it might be like with all these drones made from mushrooms or otherwise flying around, how do you have conversations with people to improve their comfort level with this becoming our potential future, Sally? There's a lot of talk around paralysis of choice. People have so much information coming at them, so much that they need to filter. And then in their daily choice, especially in developed countries, so much on offer. And the ability of a connected internet of things that is moving in real time is the ability to start offering people what they actually need. So, you know, from the classic, which is your fridge is going to tell you when you're out of milk, when you're out of your plant-based burger, when you're out of all the stuff that you need, right? And it will then tap into your Amazon if you have one of those things in the house. I don't. And it will order it for you. So a lot of the daily drudge of just keeping supply and keeping stock is gone. Now you have free time. It can act at a greater level if you have some of these chips that are in short supply but not for long, actually monitoring your vitals. Then Internet of Things is going to let you know when you need medical help. It's going to tap the medical stuff you need. It's probably going to source the drugs before you even knew you had a problem. And so when you think about how that is going to free us up from like the daily drudge of shopping and the daily drudge, the stuff we don't love, and it's going to make us healthier, and it's going to free our time to actually do more interesting things. I think that is where every person is going to benefit because having proactive information coming to you real time about you and about your needs and your context will give you a massive extra time that you didn't have before. And then where's the potential? Masses of potential for you to now do something you want to do instead of something you had to do. One of the tensions that we have in this world is that data is being collected from us at a rate of knots. And the amount of data that's being collected is increasing rapidly. And most of the time, people are uncomfortable about this because there is nothing transparent about how that data is being used and where it is then reappearing. And, you know, I want to put this in very sort of concrete terms. About a year and a half ago, I bought myself a lovely Apple Watch. And I bought myself the low-end version of the Apple Watch. And by the end of the first two weeks, when Apple allows you to return anything for any reason, I brought it back. I said, I need to return this because you need to give me the top-of-the-line version of this device. This device is connected all the time. And it is collecting an enormous amount of data around my activity, my health, and Because it is doing that, it is now capable of being able to continue to analyze that information. And because it can analyze that information, it means it can build a real-time continuing model of my health. And that can then be fed back to me and to my GP in order for us to maintain some sort of optimum level of health. That seems to me like something that people would immediately move toward, particularly as we're in an aging population where maintaining wellness for as long as possible becomes a key factor in how we will lower the burden on the medical system going forward in an aging population. I'm doing a lot of work toward Latin America and most of it is around how do we get more people connected. At the same time, have a look at the social unrest that's happening throughout the region precisely because people are connected. But this is for the right reasons. People are connected and finally realise that the way that they're living is not the way their leaders are living. 
and it's not okay. Half the world now has a mobile phone. Fantastic. Wouldn't it be great if everybody had it? Everybody has to have equity and then we will see, you know, real democracy because when people know what the situation is, they're less able to be completely rorted by the leaders at the top. The flip side is fake news and deep fakes. I think I mean, I have hope. I'm a massive optimist. And I believe that this generation coming, they have a lot of fear around job security. They have a lot of fear around climate, but they also demand vision and they demand authentic purpose. And if we have people coming through who are demanding authentic purpose, this is a good vision for the future, right? Because yeah, you can throw out deep fakes till the cows come home. But if that message doesn't ring true, if it's not authentic, I really truly believe that this generation coming through are way better as digital natives way better at detecting what is a real and authentic way forward versus what is massive propaganda there was a real belief and it was i think almost a religious belief that giving the world access to global knowledge would be a global good that has absolutely proven to be the case but what we understood was that while we were building an intelligence amplifier, we were also, and the thing we didn't understand, we were building an ignorance amplifier. You really want to be able to have a place where people can come to consensus. And consensus, it turns out, is probably going to be one of the key skills of the 21st century because we won't be able to solve these problems, particularly the global scale problems around climate, without consensus. If you put yourselves in the shoes of citizens and consumers What is the future reality that they're imagining now? I'm not going to name names here, but I have a friend who was working at a very, very large tech company, which we would all be familiar with. And he left the company, I think, back in November of last year. And he was sort of counting the days until he was free from his covenants that prevented him from saying anything about this. And he hasn't said anything publicly, but of course he said things privately to his friends about how he had gone in there with such high aspirations that he thought this company was really going to change the world. And it turned out to really just be kind of soul destroying, not just at the level of the work that he was doing, but what he saw the company doing itself. And it feels as though people are going to have less patience for that kind of behavior behavior, that they're looking for more, and that people will want to be working with businesses, with institutions, with other people who have their eyes on the vision that Sally is articulating, that really by 2030 will be carbon neutral, by 2050 will be less than that, and we will actually be turning back the clock on the idea that the planet can become more and more and more and more and more livable as we continue to live on it. That is such a, I think, a universal vision. And universal doesn't mean absolutely everyone is going to share it, but it is a way of being able to motivate an organization. It is a way to be able to motivate a government and a nation around something. And it feels like that argument, which even just 10 years ago would have sounded like I was off dancing with the pixies, now feels like actually something you can get a room full of people to agree to. And you can t- I can take a look at my clients and the kind of questions my clients are asking me. And more and more, my clients are now energy companies who are asking these questions. And when you think, well, wait, the energy companies are asking these questions now, you realize the degree that they feel the change that is on and how they actually want to be putting themselves in alignment with that change. I'm dealing with uh, a company we're looking at. They asked me to do digital strategy, future forward digital strategy for the whole of Latin America. You know, they mentioned in our briefing call, oh, you know, like search engine optimization. I went, oh, no, 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 no. That's never going to happen with me. What we're going to do 
is hit vision. And I'm about to propose to them, which if happens is going to be massive, but also makes sense, right? I'm about to say that for every convenience food you sell, we have a one-to-one program. You give exactly the same thing away to the same region. So we're going to now take the people at the bottom of the pyramid. We're going to give them free food without compromise, the same nasty stuff that people are actually buying. You know, don't change it. You will expand now your buyer potential. Your economies of scale will get better. You will collect insane amounts of data from these people. You will have their trust. This will be a massive digital transformation for the company in terms of trust, outreach, consumer loyalty. But it's not the way companies normally think. And, you know, a couple of years ago, as Mark says, when I used to suggest similar things to really big companies, they'd start laughing and go, you're adorable. Like you're really good at getting people excited, aren't you adorable? And now they are queuing up for me to help them understand the importance of greater impact and greater vision. On your point about the reckoning and the reconsideration of what's important, Mark, We've spoken a lot about changing the world and a lot of very global ideas and global perspectives, the macro, when we flip it and we think about the micro and the local, how is that translating? So one of the things that I have been working on for 30 years, because in this one, I was 30 years kind of ahead of the curve, was, was what we call today augmented reality. But what I really like to call locative metadata, the fact is that there's a world out there and it's very hard for us to connect all of the data that we have with the world with the world itself, that there's no way to sort of put them together. And augmented reality is going to do that, whether it's on your smartphone, or you're walking through a space and you'll see that there's data about something there or by the end of this decade, augmented reality spectacles from Apple, possibly from Facebooks, from some other companies, so that as you're walking through a space, the data about that space is constantly presenting itself to you. So whether that's data about the sustainability of a business or about local resources that are there, which it knows that you're interested in because you have a particular kind of diet or because you have particular kinds of needs or whatever it might be. So there's this idea that local information, which has been hard to access because it has been difficult, basically because it's been presented through the web. And the one thing we know about the web is the web is no respecter of space. The web does not understand what space is, never has. All of a sudden, we're going to get this kind of completion of that idea where we're going to get the idea of space now connected to information rather than just information out there in this vague cyberspace. And that is going to change our perception of the world completely. And that's this revolution that, again, I've just written a book about this, but this revolution kind of is heading to us at a billion miles an hour. It will be complete in some sense by the end of this decade. Those spectacles will be as common by the middle of the next decade as smartphones are now. So billions of people will be using them and they will completely revision how we operate locally, how we operate in space and the way we're learning about what's going on around us locally. People are visual. People love visuals. And so this idea of augmented reality is brilliant because what it allows you to do is look at a product. Like if you, like so many people across the world right now, have gone plant-based, if you've gone, you know what, I want to radically reduce my sustainable footprint, let's eat plants. Imagine if you go to a product and when you scan that product, you're able to actually see how this came about 
and all the advantages it could bring you. You don't want to read it. Nobody has time for that. We have the attention span of a goldfish. And now imagine we're trying to teach kids. Say you're a kid like me who, ironically, I've done some material science innovations, but I dropped science in grade eight because I didn't get it. didn't make sense. But imagine if I'd had those glasses and I was able to visualize and understand in 3D real time what the teacher was talking about. What will this do for education and inclusion? I mean, what is this going to do for kids with ADHD if we can actually use general neurotropics, whatever it is, within an artificial reality, augmented reality, to help people with learning disabilities, to help people with, we can reorder it visually and really help these people. We can help people learn to be better doctors. We can help people to learn to be better gardeners. But the idea that we can take all this information and make it visual and to a huge extent real is going to help us comprehend. At the same time, we have all this extra time because that paralysis of choice has been removed. Necessities like shopping staples, doctor's appointments, all that other stuff, pet grooming is being taken and care of by real-time speed of 5G. And so we now get to think harder and think more creatively about that stuff we now see around us visually. I mean, this potential for so many people to be involved in higher learning and more creative and co-creative kind of existence is exciting. And I think Australia will be way ahead of that because they're more comfortable generally. We have better access generally to the latest gadgets and the stuff. And so if we're talking local, I think Australia is at a huge advantage to really see this ability to see an augmented reality with this real-time information more quickly more widespread than other places. So Sally, you were talking earlier about learning and education. And if you were to give people listening today a red hot tip about what are the skills, what's the self-improvement and development that you should be investing in, what would it be? Mm, I love this question, Sarah, because it's right in my wheelhouse. So (laughs) we have just been kicked into the fourth revolution. Us futurists generally thought that the world would be in this kind of disruption of the fourth revolution, as impactful, as disruptive in every facet of life as the industrial revolution. We thought this would be kicking in about 2026, like late 2020s, right? Instead, COVID forced almost overnight the complete digitization of everything. And with that digitization, that taking of physical services and products and loading them up in digital format onto the net and sharing, we are now confronted with, ah, it's here. The fourth revolution is here. And the fourth revolution essentially is the rise of machine intelligence, you know, artificial intelligence already faster at prediction, faster at analysis, faster at picking behavioral traits with humans than the human brain. What is left? Well, we meet that machine intelligence with human creativity, something that even the deepest AI deep learning cannot replicate yet. If we're looking at a future where analysis, prediction, and some behavioral stuff can be done better by machine, what humans need to do is practice what they haven't practiced since they were kids, but they're actually better at as adults if they just free themselves. And that is a mindset that is all about possibility, imagination, creative thinking. I'm not talking about art. I'm not talking about can you draw. Actually, can you imagine possibilities? And your brain doesn't differentiate between real and imagined. And we've put all this emphasis on rational knowledge and expertise, and that will be bypassed by machine learning. But what cannot be bypassed is human creative thinking. 
creative potential and the bringing together of unexpected connections, which is the basis of all innovation. And so if people pivot away from, my God, I've got to be an expert, I've got to be a specialist, and start trying to free this other part of their mind, creative thinking, and get that habit happening so they can toggle between expertise and imagination thinking every day, they are perfectly positioned for the next 100 years, let's face it. I'm pretty sure that the skills that we will need, if we have to pick specific skills, are the ability to mentor and the ability to be mentored, you know, and both of those, and they're different skills. Some people take mentoring really well. Some people can mentor really well. That doesn't mean that we have both sets of those skills. But if we can't learn from one another, if we can't teach one another and pass on what we've learned, then we will not be able to make the kind of progress that we need to make over the next 30, 40, 50 years. And these skills are not hard. Again, we have been doing them for hundreds of thousands of years, but we need to front burner them rather than just keeping them, oh, yeah, that's a set of skills that we use when we need it. It's like, no, actually, mentoring is where we're going. And and I predicted, and it's funny because this prediction is probably being a little bit accelerated because of the pandemic, that by 2030, average person working would be spending about half their time either learning the next thing that they were doing or teaching the people who would be doing the thing they're doing now once they moved on to the next thing they were doing. And then the other half would be actually doing the thing. But that the way office work, quote unquote, would be structured would be around 50% mentor mentoring and then 50% working. And I can see that being a very big part of how organizations manage to adapt to change. I wanted to ask a final question to each of you. At Ericsson, we had an ex-Major General Craig Orm spend some time with us a couple of years back and a phrase that he used with us that has stuck with me is the future is in the flanks. I want to end on a prediction from each of you. So Sally, what's a bold prediction you can give us today? I'm totally enamoured by the future is in the flanks. But in a slightly different way, because during COVID, I wrote a book called Epic Resilience, and it was about a new kind of resilience. And for me, we need to be as emotionally strong and as physically strong, right, to survive the chaos that's coming. And then we need to be able to thrive in it by being intellectually and creatively resilient. And so the future is with each and every person. It really is more than ever because of the level of connectivity, because of the internet coverage that is starting to reach every person. It is in the flanks. It is in the vast majority, but it's also in your personal strength. And I think now is not the time to sit on the couch and eat a bag of chips. Now is the time to get out there and realize your your full emotional and physical potential and get strong. Get strong because we're looking at an era that is both frightening and exhilarating in its scope of change. And you want to be ready for that thing. Mark, what about you? I'm not quite the oldest member of Generation X, but roughly in terms of my cultural identifications and my birth date. I am the leading edge of a whole cohort of people who will redefine what it means to be, quote unquote, senior. As we now hit these retirement years, quote unquote, because again, as Sally and I are very clear, there's not going to actually be a lot of retiring going on. That's going to be for a range of reasons, some of which will be economic, but some of which will be that we clearly understand that retirement is essentially throwing in the flag and it's saying, yes, I am ready for death, (laughs) right? 
And a lot of people retire because they have to, because they are worn out, because they've been at physical labor for 40 or 50 years and they have to retire. They have to stop working their bodies that way. But there's a whole generation of people who have done office work for 40 or 50 years who will be viewing this very differently. And so there's going to be a huge focus in that era. And this is really, this is one of the main areas where I'm working as a futurist right now of understanding what it means to be part of that culture and creating the institutions and the culture for that ages. Because our quote unquote senior years ain't going to be anything like our grandparents or our parents, in part because we saw what happened to them and we don't necessarily want that for ourselves. On that note, I'd like to thank you, Sally Dominguez and Mark Pesci, for joining the Ericsson TechCetera podcast. It's been wonderful to talk with you today. Thanks, Sarah. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to TechCetera, a podcast about the intersection of technology, culture, etc. This podcast was produced by Ericsson. For 130 years and counting, Ericsson has been innovating to deliver the best of mobile connectivity and broadband to billions of people around the world, driving positive change in every sector of our society. To find out more, head to our website at ericsson.com. To guarantee you don't miss an episode of Techcetera, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Sarah Goss, and I'll be back next episode with more Techcetera. 